Almighty God, give to each of us the spine of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When I was a newly ordained minister, a friend from another parish was telling me about a secret rite that occurs during the consecration of bishops. I'm always fascinated by the obscure rites of the church, and so I asked him, pray, tell me about this rite. What does it involve? And he said, well, all of the other already ordained bishops encircle the new candidate, and while no one is looking, they reach down and take out his spine, (laughs) suggesting that most Anglican and Episcopal bishops are uh, jellyfish. Now, I have to say, our bishop is not like that. The bishop before him wasn't like that, but I have known a bishop or two that seem uh, to have a jellyfish sort of quality. But to belong to Jesus Christ requires a spine. To belong to Jesus Christ means that we are very often out of harmony and out of sync with the principalities and powers of this world, and a spine, strength, endurance, stamina, is a necessity in the world as it currently is. And in Amos chapter 7, we have something different, uh, a section of narrative. So far, we've heard Amos rant and rave against the people of Israel, but now we have a section of narrative in which the tension between Amos and the power holders of the 8th century is on full display. I would like to focus tonight on verses 10 through 14, in which we see within this narrative conflict, compromise, and courage. Conflict, compromise, and courage. The narrative is, uh, from the beginning, steeped in conflict. The text says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Amos has been given the unenviable task of ruining the zen-like quality of the northern kingdom's experience. After the north and south of God's people had finally divided one from another, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, they were trying to cobble together some basic societal necessities and some societal goods and to make everybody have a better experience than they had experienced in the last 50 years. So we see together the development of monarchy and alternative worship shrines, and so society is coming together. And in this time, when stability is so necessary, we have Amos spouting off and disturbing the peace, offering the nation an ice bucket challenge, if you will, trying to sober up Israel so that they realize their problems and what they need from God. Well... This anti-Zen ice bucket challenge was not welcomed by various facets of society. And Amos' message creates some fascinating adversaries. And they begin in the church. You would think that Amaziah, high priest of the temple, the shrine at Bethel, would be on board with a similarly anointed and inspired prophet. 
but he's not. Instead, he goes uh, to the king, colludes with the king, who within Judaism is God's anointed, God's anointed servant. And here they are in agreement that Amos is a problem. And Amaziah in particular is terrified, very worried, that Amos will upset the delicate balance of society and that the kingdom will not be able to bear his words. And he wishes desperately to keep the peace. He wishes so desperately to keep the peace that he himself begins to lie, manipulate, change the facts. Uh, we know that because he distorts Amos's message. Amos prophesied, does in fact prophesy, that the house of Jeroboam will eventually come to ruin and the country will go into exile. But he doesn't say that about Jeroboam specifically. But when Amos's message, his sermons are being presented to the king, Amaziah makes it sound like Amos has a, like a death warrant on you and you're going to die at any moment if you don't get rid of him. What we see in this passage is the congealing of church and state against the purposes of God. Amaziah is priest, Jeroboam is king. They're both nervous about the prophet. Why I'm mentioning this is because religious offices, religious titles, reli glorious religious vestments are not enough to give legitimacy. I'm saying this with some fear and trepidation as your minister, but I'm saying just because you hear something from a minister doesn't make it true. Now, in our day and age, that's not surprising because people don't like ministers or trust them anyway. But even 30 years ago, we, you know, we were more respected. People would like, you know, when they were driving down the road and we had to walk across the street, they would stop so that good father so-and-so could walk. Now they speed up to hit you. Uh, uh, but just because somebody in a religious garb or with a religious title, degree, tells you something, that means very little. Christian authority is always derivative derivative from the Word of God. And so if we say something that is outside of the mainstream of Christian orthodoxy, you have every right to be desperately concerned. So we have conflict in this story right from the beginning where the prophet is running against the principalities and powers of this world manifesting themselves in the church and the state. And then there's a compromise offered to the prophet which is often the sought-after goal in the midst of conflict. By the way, most of the time, compromises are terrific. If you're not a person that is prone to compromise, I invite you and encourage you to uh, recalibrate your natural disposition. Uh, compromise generally is a very happy thing, uh, but not when it has to do uh, with critical matters in the Word of God. This is what Amaziah offers Amos, verse 12, and Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, isn't that nice? He gave him a title. O seer, you're a wise man. Go and flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of this kingdom. Notice what Amaziah does. It's brilliant. He breathes no threats. He doesn't tell the prophet to shut up or even change his message. He just says, how about you consider an adjustment in terms of location? What about the hicks down south? 
They really thought of them that way, right? Because the ten great tribes were in the north, Judah, and in the south they have two tribes. Why don't you go there? Because I'll tell you, they have needs. Oh, so many needs. They need your message. They need what you're saying. Why don't you go down there? And I'll tell you what else. You could make some money out of this. You know, you could have bread. That means you could pay the bill. You could live better down there. And your message could get across without ruffling the feathers of clergy or kings. I just have one request for you. Just stay away from this one city up north. Don't, don't go into Bethel because, you know, it's the place of our sanctuary and it's the place of the king's palace and it's the locus of what we're trying to do here. And right now in our project, we're in a delicate state and, in a delicate state, and we'd like to keep the balance at least for a season. So this is the request, the compromise. Just do the same thing you're doing somewhere else. Only one problem with that. Just one little problem. And the prophet mentions it later. But God told me, go and prophesy to Israel. To all of you up north. Here's the point. Evil, when it comes to you, will by its very nature disguise itself as a partial good. The devil will not show up in your life in red pajamas with horns and a pitchfork because you would say unto yourself, you are the devil. According to St. Paul, the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. And so the devil, or evil, will come to you as rational, sensible, balanced, perfectly reasonable. In this case, evil has the face of a priest. Good Father Amaziah. Who would ever doubt his veracity? Some of you have read the novella The Great Divorce, uh, C.S. Lewis's imaginary jaunt through uh, hell and then heaven. In this great little book, a group of the damned enter into paradise to take a tour. Most of them hate it. But among the damned is an Anglican bishop who discovers a long-lost friend of his who's evidently redeemed it in heaven, and they have a conversation. And this conversation is all about the seduction of wrongful compromise. I will now read it unto you. So the bishop from the gray plains of hell, now in paradise, gazed at his one-time friend on earth, whom he had once tried to convince of a broader truth. This same friend was now a bright, redeemed spirit. The bishop said to the spirit, It saddens me what occurred to you near the end of your life, when you became rather narrow. And to think you were coming to believe in a literal heaven and hell. I mean, I myself believe in them spiritually, I suppose. I am still, my dear boy, looking for the kingdom. But nothing superstitious or mythological. We've all moved past that, haven't we? The spirit interrupted the bishop and asked, But excuse me, friend, where do you imagine you've been all these many years? Ah, said the bishop, I see. You mean that gray town with its continual hope of mourning, with its field of indefinite progress. It is, in a sense, heaven, if only we have the eyes to see it. Now that you mention it, I don't think we've ever given it a name. What do you call it here? Spirit curtly replied, we call it hell. <laughs> now, there's no need to be profane, my dear boy. I may not be very orthodox in your narrow sense of that word, but I do feel that these matters ought to be discussed reverently. You want me to discuss hell reverently? 
asked this white spirit. The bishop retorted, this is so like you. No doubt you'll tell me why in your narrow view I was sent to this so-called hell. Please do tell me I'm not angry with you. But don't you know? You went there because you're an apostate. Are you serious? asked the bishop. Do you really think that people are penalized for their honest opinions? My opinions were not only honest, they were heroic. Especially at the time, I asserted them fearlessly. When the doctrine of Christ's resurrection ceased to commend itself to the critical faculties which God had given me, I openly rejected it. I preached my famous sermon. I defied the whole New Testament. I took every single risk. What risk? asked the spirit. What was likely to come of it, except what actually came? Popularity, sales for your books, invitations to speak, and finally you became a bishop. Let us be frank. Our opinions were not honestly come by. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into them because they seemed modern, acceptable, and successful. At college, we just started writing the kind of essays that got us good marks and saying the kind of things that won us applause. When, in our whole lives, did we honestly face in solitude the one question on which everything else turned, whether, after all, the supernatural might not, in fact, occur? When did we put up one moment's real resistance to the loss of our faith? And then later it says, the Episcopal ghost tilted its head and beamed a hellish smile, and then turned away from heaven, humming softly to itself, City of God, how broad and how far. Lewis shows not only the danger of compromise, but often the very rotten motives behind it. So we have conflict, and then a compromise being offered. And then a moment of courage, a glorious moment of courage. Verse 14, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go and prophesy to my people Israel. In Amos's person, we see parallel streams of humility and confidence at the same time. The humility is astounding. He admits, not to his friends, but to his adversaries, I'm not trained. I didn't go to school for this. I'm a farmer. That's what I know. He begins there. He doesn't over-promote. The stand is important, but also the manner of his stand is important. It's coming from a place of humility. And also, he doesn't want to see Israel scorched. He wants to see Israel made well. But also confidence, not in his training, not in his familial advantages, but in the Word of God that came to him. Because the Word of God was clear. It said, I want you to go to Israel and speak to my people there. Uh, so he has this unshakable confidence to stand up against the most powerful principalities and powers within his world, the church and the state, who are aligning themselves against God entirely and brazenly, and he stands against them. And I think about those who have, in key moments, moments when it would have been far easier to cave, who didn't cave. I think about all those 
little boys in Uganda. You may know the story of these little boys and these teenagers in Uganda. This is in the 1880s. And there were 23 Anglicans and 22 Catholics. And when the king at the time propositioned all of them and they turned him down because of their Christian commitment, he had them all burned alive. And I think about Charles Simeon, who stood up against the the, the power structures of the church of his day, and they hated him because of his commitment to the Scripture and his Christ-centered preaching. They absolutely hated him. And, and his vestry, this, the vestry hasn't done this to me yet, they locked him out of his church. Uh, they, um, they made sure that there were no candles for the evening service so he couldn't read his sermon. That's how they did it. And, and the students, when he was walking uh, near Cambridge, would throw garbage on him as a way of showing their open derision for this man. But he stood there strong for 20 years, 20 years of that type of abuse. Uh, I think of our hero Martin Luther, who when he was confronted by the church and state in that day and age, he was given threat of excommunication, and then he stood bravely in court in Worms. And when he was challenged by John Eck, a theologian and lawyer, to uh, disregard and, and refute all of his own work. He said that he couldn't do it. He said, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. He said uh, later that my conscience is captive to the word of God, not popes and councils, which have so often contradicted themselves. That he had a high, there was a higher authority that the lesser authorities were not bowing to at the time. And this is, this is true for Amos. You know, I was recently accused by somebody, given a particular issue, of being on the wrong side of history. I mean, that's always fun, being on the wrong side of history and embracing injustice. I, I had a moment of vision, though, right there. And I said, you know, I think the kingdom of God is the right side of history. Apart from that, I'm just not very interested. And so we have conflict and compromise and then courage. And so my, my own family in Christ here gathered today, I know and you know that we live in times of tumult that will rattle the souls of even the strongest saints. Even those bravest among us can crumble under the weight of pressure. So a word about conflict, compromise, and courage as they relate to us. Conflict. To bear the word of God in its fullness, law to its full degree, gospel to its full degree, to be the recipients and imbibers of those things means by necessity conflict. Conflict within ourselves, because those realities will war against the fallen parts of our own lives, and conflict against the principalities and powers of our world. Um, Jesus told us that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I wish he had never said that, but he did. And so that will be, to some degree, our experience. Also, compromise. When we approach Scripture and employ, let me put it this way, it is very tempting in various spheres of life to perform what I call exegetical acrobatics with the Bible to ignore or so radically and dishonestly reinterpret what Scripture actually says so that we don't have to face the edge of it, that we 
put ourselves in a perilous uh, position. I was speaking with a, a minister friend of mine who was engaging in a particular liturgical rite which I regard as contrary to Holy Scripture. In attempting to extend an olive branch to this person, I said, I know that in doing this you are attempting to be pastoral. They put a hand up in interruption and said, please, please do not label my own moral cowardice as pastoral. Let's call it what it is. I admired the candor. All of us can do this. All of us will be offered at some point a diseased olive branch. And if we receive it, our lives will not change for the better, but for the worse. Conflict, compromise, and lastly, courage. Courage, friends, does not mean the absence of fear. Courage means being afraid of the right thing. Fearing the right thing, respecting the right thing. Whom or what do we fear? Is it maybe the gods of Amaziah, that is, the voices of cultural dominance? It might be the Huffington Post. It might be Ayn Rand. Uh, it might be a new definition of social justice. It might be familial or social pressure. It might be peace at all costs, even the cost of truth. If you're a person who is tired of the warfare of living, sometimes you will be tempted to put peace on such a high pedestal that truth crumbles away before it. Or is it perception? Is that ultimately our God, perception? Because we don't want to be thought of as narrow, hard, or uncompassionate. Is it in some ways our fear of being depicted as the Christians are depicted in all of Clint Eastwood's movies? What do we fear? Whom do we fear? Because the Bible suggests there is only one worth fearing. The one who holds life and death in his hands, the one who is the living judge over all principalities and powers, over us all, and over the whole world. And so, conflict, compromise, and courage. Yet the center of our religion, our life, and our trust is not our own courage, nor our cowardice. The center of our religious hope is a man a man with a sturdy spine and a kind face set like a flint to accomplish something for cowards. Christ Jesus came to die for every coward who has ever experienced a failure of nerve, missed a key moment, remained silent when they should have spoken, engaged in exegetical acrobatics, and lied to ourselves about the rightness of our cause. He died for cowards. If I can put it this way, he was brave for us. And the good news is that the same spirit that was present in Christ has made his way to you, and this same brave Christ with a strong spine can make us brave, can make us true, and can help us to stand, can give to us, if you will, his own spine. So may we not fear shadows and trust entirely that in the right moment, God will give us everything that we need. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.